How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 143. Yes. And I, I, I'm like, do you know how many times this week I had to, like, remind myself what we're up to? Like, I'm usually pretty... Yeah. Like, I remember, and I was like, is it 43, 44? Like, I... Or 40, 40... For, yeah, it's... I, I'm, oh, man. It's tough. I think it's because also we were organizing episode 44 ahead of the show. So, for a second yeah, there... Yeah, but I just mean, like, the whole week. Yeah. I've been all over the place, man. It is you and me both, buddy. You and me both. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm just running for my life. But as it is, I followed... I was saying this. I followed someone on Letterboxd who I've seen around, but I didn't. I didn't really connect the dots. I followed Sean Baker on Letterboxd recently. Oh, who has one? Well, he logs all the films he sees, of course, and writes little comments about it. Doesn't really grade anything. The one star rating he left was for the Florida Project, which he gave one star. He's like the ending's digital, gross. <laughs> It seems a bit self-aware. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. But yeah, you should follow him on Letterboxd. It's really cool because he finds all random obscure stuff. And there's a little hint. Someone found his new film. I think it's called Red Rocket. The lead in that film, I think they found it, a review that he wrote years ago, praising the actor, saying like, oh, I'd love to, love to see him do a drama one day. Mm. So it's like little little hints about where his mind's at as a director, which is pretty cool. So yeah, Sean Baker. Follow is, him on Letterboxd. That is pretty cool. Yeah. No worries. Well... Speaking of uh, letterbox and and films, uh, that was <laughs> one of my worst segues I have done on this show. Oh man, That's Jake, right. do you have a trivia fact for me for our film of the week? I do. So of course, film of the week this week, we're doing Nit Ram, which mm. we, we got the pronunciation right this time. I, I actually don't remember what we said last week. I think it's a nitrum. Oh yeah, night. Yeah, I think I said nitrum because I wasn't sure. Mm. It's very Nit Ram. It's very broken up, and they say it in the film and. The Usher corrected me, so that's good. <laughs> but yeah, the film of the week, Nit Ram, of course, is an Australian film on a very, very controversial part of Australia's history. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about not specifically this film, but a bit of history that you can find on the internet. So if you find a trailer for a film called Wasp, the Port Arthur Massacre, which was released in June 2019, it's actually a, tr- a trailer frankly, a very cheap-looking trailer, very mm-hmm. very low budget, um, of this story, basically. Like, some guy was going to make this film, and and I, I think the aim was that he was going to explore more of the, uh, uh, the uh, what's it called, the conspiracy theory side of things that this film doesn't really touch on at all. It sort of just plays it as a straight-laced, here's this character piece about a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can find this trailer still, and the, the producer-director, Paul Modder, actually commented recently and talked about how he allegedly pitched this story to uh, both the director, Justin uh, Cazell, who did Nitram, or Nitram, I'm going to keep screwing the name up, uh, as well as Stan. He pitched the film to them. They declined it and then went ahead and made this version of film. This is all hearsay. Okay. But the trailer released over two years ago is still up on YouTube. So I wanted, wanted to mention that. The film was called Wasp, The Port Arthur Massacre, and I think they're still trying to fund it. Um, but yeah, it's a very cheap-looking version of the story, and and a much more gruesome graphic version, I should add, which I don't think is very necessary. But yeah, well, what about you, Zeke? Do you have a fact? Um, yeah. Look, 
it's obviously you know we've like we've already been talking about how we've messed up the name quite a few times so i'm gonna <laughs> just quickly point this out obviously it ties back to the historical context behind this film mm. uh, the lead character's name uh, of the f- uh, in the film is obviously nit ram um which is martin spelled backwards um mm. and martin bryant being uh, the name of the actual shooter in the right. fourth arthur massacre um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. We're not reviewing it yet, of course, but I thought it was interesting. They don't name drop him ever in this film, no. and they, he's only called Nit Ram. Yes, um, which I think is a false or a fabricated nickname. Like, there's no reports that that's what he he was he went by at any point in his life. Yes, which is interesting, but um, very yeah. intriguing. So yeah, we'll oh, obviously cool. touch on that and explore that a little bit later in the show. Mm. But until then, Jake, have you caught anything in the last week? Um, I've caught a lot actually. I will just quickly say before we move on too fast, mm. our favourite segment Zeke, mm. the eleven hundred films. Posters. Beg my pardon, I completely botched that one. That's eh? all right. Um, you got to watch once in your lifetime. Would you put this film on on your list? Oh, um, mm. probably not. Okay. Um, and I'll I'll talk a little bit later in the show. But the the important thing I think for this, uh film um it actually i don't want to go into it too much because i feel like i can actually come back to this yeah in the second course. half of the show um stay tuned folks. so I'll, I'll hold <laughs> i'll hold off on why i think that in the second half of the show most importantly um obviously australian cinema is very important in my in my assembly of that 1100 list but this film is not one that i think that would be Make that short list, I think. Mm, okay. That category. So, yeah. That's fair. I, I I actually lean toward yes, I probably would put it on my list. Um, partly because I put Lamb on my list. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to compare those bars sure. there. Okay. Um, but also, I, I think, again, there are very specific reasons. And I think, I think there's a certain portrayal in this film that I think is worth discussing, worth exploring. So, of course, we'll get into that later. But just wanted to throw that out there because I think this might be the first time we've had conflicting thoughts on whether it should be on the poster or not. Yeah, I think Lamb was sort of... But you swayed me with your Lamb rationale. Okay. So I'll be oh, that's to, right, of course, yeah. Um, Just last week. <laughs> yeah. But this one I'm, I'm more adamant with, I think. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Um, but, yeah. So, yeah, we'll just jump into all the things you've watched in the last week, Jake. Gosh, yeah. So, I will... I'll just sort of spitball a lot of these. Um, so it was my mum's birthday pretty recently. As a family, we all sat down and rewatched Dodgeball, the 2004 film, which is a classic mm-hmm. of our of our family. Um, it's still great. I was actually surprised at how many plans and payoffs are actually sort of planted throughout the film. Like it's a the, very tight film. It's very tight. It's 90 minutes. Um, I was surprised at how long it takes to actually get to the the main Dodgeball tournament stuff. Rewatching it. Okay. Um, because I remember, so we, we watched this like a Bali copy years and years and years ago. And we watched, saw it many, 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 many times. And for some reason in my mind, it, it never felt like a real film. You know what I mean? And I think it's because there's a lot of picture within picture stuff. It starts with like a fake commercial, you know, with White Goodman. Um, there's like the fake dodgeball film in the middle. I think a lot of that and the fact all the graphics over the TV sport, uh, when they're actually, you know, televising the dodgeball. I think a lot of that was part of the reason it never felt like a real film to me. Obviously, now that's bizarre. Of course, it's a real film, mm. um, which I thought was quite interesting, especially now watching a Blu-ray of it. I was like, wow, this looks awesome. <laughs> it looks really awesome, Blu-ray. Um, I can't say... When I when we rewatched, for example, Airplane, or if you want to call it Flying High, 
we did on the podcast episode 80 something it was it was 82 it might have been 82 yeah it was around that period of time i think but rewatching airplane was i was hysterically laughing there were so many moments that i'd either forgotten about or i didn't get the joke until i was older you know there was some subtlety about it i think with dodgeball there was a lot less of that there were no really new jokes so to speak a lot of it was pretty digestible at a younger age the film's overall more crude than airplane 89 oh there you go episode 89 yeah um i think because the film is so quite i think dodgeball is probably the most quotable film of all time which almost hinders it in a way because after 15 years things stop being funny mm-hmm. or not they're not as funny so i wanted to mention that um you always talk about your drinking cringe that's drink too yeah, such an interesting thing you think that's the most quotable i would i reckon it is i would say I would actually say Tropic Thunder is more quotable. I don't know. I'd say Tropic Thunder. If we were talking about quotable, yeah, from that sort of period, like of time. lines you can remember instinctively. The amount of times I've heard the Benzel exchange of "I know you, you know me, and I know that you know that I know you," yeah. like I've heard that sure. spoken in real life a million times. Okay. <laughs> Like those exchanges and maybe it's just you know no one makes me my bleed affirm- my own blood. Yeah, my affirmation for um, Tropic Thunder is more for than Dodgeball. Yeah, so. no, that's fair enough. But hey, Ben Stiller's quite involved in both. So yes, there you go. And I think he got a Razzie, or is at least nominated for a Razzie for worst performance, which I think's ridiculous. His performance as White Goodman is is spectacular. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, so I don't care what anyone has to say about that. I'm um, not sure what, what constitutes it. Way I see it, a Razzie is not. That sort of, because he's playing an absurd character. Like, yeah, exactly. of course, his acting is not like. Yeah, it's over the top, but it's like comedically yeah, over the top, yeah. and it's it's in service of the film. Like he's that would he, be like saying like Alan. That would be the same thing with like saying Alan Alan Tudyk in the same film is deserving of a Razzie right. because of how over the top <laughs> he's playing a pirate for ninety percent right. of the film. Yeah. You know, Steve like, the pirate. It's very, that <laughs> is a very odd yeah, nomination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, no one cares about the Razzies. It's fine. But um, like I was saying, you always talk about your drink to cringe films, Zeke. And I, yes. I had a very similar train this past weekend. We didn't drink, but, you know, we still had a bit of fun. First one we watched was Never Cry Werewolf, 2008 film, which is apparently just a remake of Fright Night, but with werewolves instead of vampires and infinitely way worse. It's very, very bad. I will say, like... Is it a spoof film? I think they, like, made it to be... Like, they took it seriously. Okay, it's not like a spoof spoof. It's that's just, the best one, then. Yeah. Okay. It's not... It's not. It's cheating if it's a spoof film, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. No, no, no. They they 100% like try movie. to make a serious yeah, film okay. here. So, yeah. your epic movies, your superhero movies... No, they're not, no, no, They're no, not no, cringeworthy no. because they're deliberately trying to be bad to be good. It's yeah, like exactly. Sharknado's. They don't count. Yeah. The Room... That's what the phenomenon of the room is. That's exactly. Where, that's where it epitomizes. So, sorry, Jack. Yeah. No, 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 of course. No, I think I think that's good context to bring because, yeah, like the room, the reason it's so great is because they really didn't try to make it a comedy. Yeah, they legitimately they thought it was a good film. Yeah. Like, with the exception of a couple of times, you kind of feel like actors are deliberately knowing they're in a bad film and kind of <laughs> kind of hampering into it a little bit. Yeah, Um yeah. Well, not obviously Tommy Wiseau, who definitely thought he was legitimately making a, a <laughs> drama. That's the beauty. Yeah. That's yeah. like watching the, the Kissing Booth films. The reason why they're so great in this category just, yeah, is because they're legitimate. Great. Or anything with Noah Santiago in it. Oh, That's a golden gem for uh, 
all of his films. Got, there's got to be a, a tinge of self-awareness. There has to be. I would love to one day, uh, and you know, if I had a bit more free time, would love to make a like a thirty-minute version of our show where we right. just did a really bad film a week. <laughs> no, we got to do a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. We got to do the full the full deal. Just but, do a yeah. do a live reactions to it. Maybe just stream it instead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stream reactions. So yeah, look, I, I, it wasn't Krampus the Christmas Devil level bad. Where like that film has like, literally just sprinkled with technical issues and mm. like actors like just stop acting and are still in frame. Like even though they think they've walked out of frame, like things like that, just abhorrent issues. The film doesn't have that, and like even visually, it kind of reminded me of the Goosebumps TV series. Which obviously looks really cheap, but mm. it's like it kind of has a bit of a TV movie charm to the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, but it, it's like laughably bad. Like there's so many quotes. And you, if you want to learn how to tell someone to shut up, this film has like 50 ways of <laughs> shut up, shut up, shut up, Lauren. So, it's pervy. I so don't what's what's Lauren. what's this one? What platform is this on? What streaming platform? Oh well, it was it was my friend's uh, stash. Okay. I uh, I don't know if there is a streaming service to watch it, but. It was in a it was in a, it, it was in a folder called bad movie. That's okay. bad movies. That's all I know. <laughs> what was it called again? Never cry werewolf. Uh, Never cry werewolf, which actually has not a terrible letterbox score. It's like a two point two. That's not terrible. So it's a little bit generous from them, but okay, Compared whatever. To some of the elite collection that I've assembled. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The other one we watched that day, or uh, yeah, that day would be Super Mario Brothers, nineteen ninety three. Oh, fantastic. Now. I don't know. The reason I haven't logged any of these films yet is specifically because of this film. I don't know what to make of it, Zeke. I don't know. Now, on one hand, as an adaptation of the video game characters, it is the most abhorrent thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it was the mo- It was the perfect iconography seeing these characters in Brooklyn sitting in an Italian restaurant as if that's going to make up for the fact that this Japanese property wrote Italian characters. It was the perfect combination of that of that whole lucid dream that is the Super Mario Brothers film. Yeah. It's it's amazing. But but his yes. thing's like, but but this film plays exactly like they intended it to play. It's not like Never Cry Werewolf where they thought they were making a legitimately great horror film, and they clearly weren't. Here, it's like, they kind of achieved everything they wanted to. If this film was released under any other name, call this Bill and Ted 1.5, it would have been drastically better received. The uh, like the costume design and the, the production design period, like the they kind of go into this like, alternate world under the caves with like these dinosaur creatures of kind of like goombas or these giant creepy things and it's like it's all great mm. it's all great it's all fun but isn't isn't bowser a but, human yeah too? bowser's a human rutger hauer even more in- <laughs> Just a- look, look, we talked about one of his most iconic scenes of cinema history yeah. <laughs> here we're actually talking about this film yes yeah, get his tears film. in the rain we were this is this is the thing this is the thing I think it's Dennis Hopper who plays um, is it Dennis Hopper I think it's Dennis I Hopper it was, oh it's Dennis Hopper not, I thought it was Rick Howard. I don't know no because I remember making a joke to my friend Keish I was like yeah he had to make this film after that garbage film Easy Rider <laughs> this is how he made up for his career he's too big, he inhaled oh, too much yeah. nitrogen in blue velvet yeah <laughs> <laughs> Started, like, this is actually him just hallucinating. Yeah. See, this is why I'm like, like, okay, Mario shouldn't be wielding guns. I get it. But on the same token, the creators wanted to make a film about that, 
and they did it pretty successfully. Yeah. They pissed off Nintendo. <laughs> but I've always wanted to watch it. Oh, I am very so proud bizarre. that you you've watched it. No. Oh, it's great. I don't know. I don't know what score to give it, Zeke. I I authentically don't. I was leaning towards a one at one point. And then I was leaning towards a three and a half on the other end of the film. I was like, I don't know where I lean with this. That is a vast <laughs> Think of every other film you've given three and a half, and you'll be putting that in the same category. <laughs> and we know we've talked about how scoring is kind of rudimentary in its own right. But yeah, 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 yeah. Geez, you've given some good films three and a half. Yeah, I know. I you know. gave Streamline three, and you're going to give Super Mario Bros. <laughs> three and a half. Get out of here! I it's definitely not going to get three and a half. I think, I think I'm going to have to give it like maybe a two, with like a footnote saying if yeah. this was named anything else, if the characters weren't named Mario and Luigi, I would give it an extra star. I think that would have to be the preset that I add to that. To that. Well, I, from I one video game adaptation film to another oh, video no. game adaptation. Oh film. no, Jake! I watched Free Guy. Yes, yeah, so. I, t- I talked about Free Guy last week. You, you could take the stage, Zeke. Ooh, all right. Let's go in here. I think. Let's go in here. Jake's uh, thesis on the film last week was pretty damn accurate. Um, uh, I don't really have too much to add to it. I just thought that was a very good segue to kind of jump in with. No, the, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, it's the only feature. I actually watched two feature films this week. Oh, okay, cool. Neither of them were very good, apart from, you know, with exception to the film of the week. I've been more on a TV show. A stint, um, but yeah, to to touch on Free Guy, pretty much everything Jake brought up last week is pretty much bang on the money. The you know we had, we had a really nice conversation about video game mm-hmm. artistry, film yeah. making, and how that's kind of been a absent from the mainstream uh, uh, eyes at least. Um, I don't think uh, cinema itself has actually fully come to appreciate it as an art, an higher art form yet. Mm. Um, instead, we're going to stick with the juvenile comedy side. I don't. The worst part is, I'm with. It's a worse version of something like the Lego Movie, and it has a lot of things in common with the Lego Movie. Um, and but it's drastically less funny, even though it's catered to an older audience. The fact that mm. I laugh an excessive amount more in the Lego Movie than I do in Free Guy, despite the fact one of them is clearly targeted more at children than the other. Yeah speaks volumes to the type of comedy Free Guy presents you with. It's not funny. I, I And I think this comes, and from a film point of view, I, I agree. I think pop culture references, much like the same problem in, in, in Ready Player One, uh, plague the latter stages in particular uh, of this film. Um, there are a couple of things I like. I, d- I do like that in the outside world when they're looking at the video game it looks like a video game like right, they, they, yeah, they, yeah. that sort of special it's like effect. a CGI image it's yeah. very clearly like they're, they're doing a, a GTA like modded version and I, I do yeah. appreciate that they do that like I actually quite like that I think that that's at least going well at least you know that they're playing a video game and it's not got that same level of over sci-fi immersion crap that, that Ready Player One has however mm. I feel like Ready Player One has a way more coherent story, so yeah, yeah, um, with a more believable antagonist and honestly more compelling protagonist. I don't like them that much in Ready Player One, but I like them more than the ones we're given here. I definitely like the antagonist more in Ready Player One. Yeah, and Mister like, Watiti. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say no, like Taco Juvenile <laughs> child man baby, despite the fact he's a middle aged man, and we pretty well aware he is now. Um. 
I think they're trying to recapture that. I don't know what... I actually don't know what they're trying to do with his casting. It kind of makes no sense. Like, Ryan Reynolds' mm. character makes sense. He's kind of in the same Chris Pratt vein of immature man-baby... Yeah, uh, yeah. ...like, character, but... I think I think his performance is really bad, but I also I do agree with you. He's he's not miscast. Mm, whereas um, I think Watiti is right. Yeah, completely. Um, he has he makes no sense. Um, solely feels like they're riding the popularity coattails that he's had in the last two or three years. Um, right. So that's that's pretty much all I have to say about that film. And then I don't that's even really have that much to say about Table Nineteen. That was one of those. Uh, not cringe film, very late, lackadaisical rom-com films. It's... Lackadaisical? Yes. Oh, cool. Um, that was fun to say. Thank you. <laughs> um, one of those, I'm, it's 10.30 at night and I'm going to watch a 90-minute spoofy comedy romance right. film, yeah. um, which 99% of the time never amount to anything more than a mediocre-esque performance. This is very much in that plane, uh, same vein. It stars you know, Anna Kendrick and... Craig Robinson and um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Wyatt Russell um, before a uh, you know sort of like his cap surgeons and this was riding off you know stuff like her pitch perfect stuff very much very forgettable sort of rough night like the film that comes out normally mid year did you see rough night I have seen it yes oh and it's, uh, it's Moni Yoko it's no yeah okay did nothing for me fair enough um, I was surprised by that cool um Rough Night made me laugh more than this film. This film mm. kind of was just so... Oh, it also started Stephen Merchant, too. It was actually a pretty oh, half-decent half cast. Yeah. That felt like they got... Ro- like, they very much came in for their their, their money paycheck. It, it very much because it's all set at this wedding reception where Table 19 is basically the reject Frankenstein table of, of random assortment of people and... And it very much oh, right, feels like yeah. what it looks like That's is funny. a bunch of these actors got paid a decent amount of money for like four days work because it was obviously because it was all one location, like all set in this hotel, basically. I imagine the downtime with making this film, this film was probably shot in less than three weeks. Like it mm. was very much like, oh, look, let's pay, let's pay Anna Kendrick a couple million bucks to come here and make this film that we're going to put out mid-year on a $20 million budget with a nice four-week release in that dry period. It's not a bad film. It's so forgettable, though. Like, I will not remember talk. Like, the only thing that's going to make me remember this film now is the archive of this show. <laughs> when you listen back to the show in the future, oh, I remember that of Hill. Yeah. We've all we've all seen those kinds of films. The problem with rom coms is ninety nine percent, like a good ninety percent of them, are so forgettable and nothing. And yeah, ten percent stay yeah. with us, but the other ninety just get lost to the like r- like rough night. I watched that film less than a year ago. Yeah, and I can tell you pointers, but I can't tell you a single funny. You know, we're talking about quotability. Yeah, exactly. Of dodgeball, like I was sort of bad mouthing dodgeball is that it wasn't as funny as I remember it being, but it's still hilarious and very quotable. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's like, you obviously get diminishing returns, I think, with comedy films and we see them too, but, and, and some things don't age well, but the fact that you can quote stuff from Dodgeball shows it's... Whereas, I watched Dodgeball for the... I haven't watched that in maybe six or seven years. I watched The Internship maybe two years ago. I can't quote anything from The Internship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I saw that on a plane. Yeah. (laughs) 
That is the perfect plane film. <laughs> that is that is the definition. That's almost like the category. I call like yeah, something like Table Nineteen. It's a plane film. It's an airplane film. It's yeah. a film that when I have had two hours of sleep on a fifteen-hour flight and I need to watch six or seven films, and not all of them can be like films that I absolutely shouldn't watch on planes, like Last Black Man in San Francisco, right? <laughs> like or Everest. I watched Everest for the first oh, time on a plane. Oh, what a no. stupid film to watch on a plane. This <laughs> atmospheric like yeah. climatary horror and I'm watching it through little like little headphones like <laughs> you should you should watch like alive on an airplane that that won't freak you but out legit <laughs> ta- the table 19s or or the internships they are the perfect airplane films right um harmless non-threatening easy to watch off an hour's worth of sleep i must have an owen wilson thing on planes because i watched marley and me on the plane that's a that's a rough that's a bad one to watch on a plane yeah i don't recommend it that might be the first time i cried watching a a feature i'm not gonna lie i cried watching prison break yeah what's good hunting (laughs) on a plane oh no Marley and Me's tough as well, yeah. Um, it's yeah. a good film. What about... You got anything else you watch? Buddy? Yeah, well, the other thing I was going to mention, which I know for a fact you've caught up on, is I watched the rest of What If, no, the Marvel show. So I saw the first four episodes you know, a few weeks back, and then I watched five to nine to the rest of the season recently. I know you watched all nine. In one hit. In one hit, yeah. yeah. Um, well, what, did, what did you think overall? So it's funny, because we were talking a little bit about it yesterday before we went and saw the film of the week, but mm. um, I didn't dislike it. I like the some episodes. Obviously, like more than others. I think we both yep. were big fans of the Doctor Strange episode. Yep. Um, and as someone who didn't really like Doctor Strange that much, I quite enjoyed the episode, which was nice. It's a lot more nihilistic than the. Uh, I think mean, the whole show is a lot more nihilistic than the actual movies, and I think I think that's because so many of them end darker or I end think, on darker notes. Well, we've also the funny thing is, I think the show has the benefit of having the flexibility of mortality, which is one of the few times the MCU has ever kind of flex that muscle yeah because um there's no harm now it's now that the the multiverse cat has been let out of the bag oh god suddenly uh consequences uh like of losing actors or actresses in the franchise has gone out the window because if one dies in one universe as we see even in the summation of this show they almost can get picked up and put down in a new one with no issue yeah. So now no one can really die, but everyone can really die, mm. um, which is not good. I mean, it's yeah, it's well, really it, it's stupid. I, I that's kind of why I like and don't like the show is I like it in the sense that you can do all sorts of weird. I wasn't a huge fan of the Killmonger Iron Man episode, but I appreciate that it can. It's like oh, here's an episode that sort of is a little subversive, and um, oh, it's about Killmonger like basically tricking everyone and getting his way, which you can't have in the in the mainline films, but you could do it here. I like the idea that they can do that here, but you said to me yesterday you're you're confident that they're gonna bring like the Peggy Carter of this show and put her in the mainline no, films. No, one hundred percent. And that kind of scares me because I think you might be right. Hundred percent. I mean the the importance I think of particularly this this show was to introduce characters like particularly her character right um into this option of of quite easily just jumping especially when you think of the particularly the last two episodes which really start to become um 
chronologically sequential. Like yeah, they're not they're all isolated of... anthe like they're not all up the first seven episodes are almost in an anthology. None yeah. of their none of them it's, it's actually listed as an anthology on Disney Plus. Except the last two episodes blatantly go against that. Yeah. Because they, yeah. they follow They tie a, everything up. Yeah, in fact they make the whole nine episodes chronological because yeah. um every character a lot of the key characters from the first seven episodes directly play an episode, uh, play a role in the eight and nine episode. Yeah. Um, with a quick last minute of it, uh, edition of Gamora, basically. That was, um, I read that was a cut episode. There was meant to be 10 episodes and that was like one with her and Iron Man. They cut that. So they just kind of strange like, uh, that they would cut it, but sure. It was, a, it was a time issue. They couldn't do it in time. Yeah. Okay, apparently. cool. Fair but, enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's very clearly um, what they were trying to. So then that makes it definitely chronological. Yeah, that, they've always. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's not. An, it's that. not an anthology then, um, and that's a bit of a shame because I kind of actually would have preferred if this show had completely and utterly stay to an anthology. But because of the last two episodes shift, it very much means every character we saw over the course of this show has a very good chance of coming back. Or, or finding its way into the the main uh, real time MCU. Yeah. Obviously, some of them probably are safe. Like you're probably not going to see that that version of Thor because you don't really need to see that version of Thor. I thought that um, was strange in the sense that yeah, like they want to tie all the the stories up, but it's like if you're going to bring like the greatest warriors of the multiverse, why would you get like the drunk frat boy for? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You could pick any four in the universe in the multiverse. Yeah. Anyway, that was a semantic. No, no, I actually think there are problems, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think what is it? The show was had. F- I would have preferred if the show had yeah had stayed and and in an anthology sense because yeah, it allows. I'd like for example, it's like I did think the zombie episode was incredibly uh, cliche in its yeah I was uh, structure. Fan of that one. I didn't, but I'm I'm gonna counter. I actually did enjoy the episode for the most part. I liked. Um, parts of it i thought the ending was incredibly rushed in that episode and and kind of felt like it jumped about four points that it didn't need to um the strange episode for me is definitely the highlight episode i like the peggy carter episode too yeah um, i thought it was really well directed that one like the camera work is really cool in that one um yeah i think they're probably the two and i like the bozeman episode the the if he was star lord episode yeah i yeah. think that's a fun episode see that that's the twist of the nihilistic side of it of like oh here are the horrible things that could have happened if our heroes failed that's another side of it of yeah. if you just swap the roles of these characters like, look, he, he, him being Star Lord convinced Thanos to not be a murderer or, or a, like a, a genocidal yeah. maniac. Like those little twists are like funny, because mm. it's like, man, Chris Pratt, is, I, it really does suck. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, yeah. those are in the mainstream films too. That his emotion is often the thing that um, compliments him, but it's also his biggest flaw. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny. Yeah, they can do, they can do both sides for I sure. Like that. Um, I actually like the last couple of episodes. I like particularly the almost the Hawkeye appreciation over the show is quite nice too, having a little bit more of him in there and oh, yeah. quite actually quite a lot of Black Widow stuff in over the course of the nine episodes too, yeah, yeah, in one way sure. or another. Um, I, she's I always... often she often is a central character of quite a few of the episodes. Yeah. Um whether she makes it to the end of a lot of those episodes is, is um, is questionable, but she often gets quite a big, uh, big role yeah. in them. Which well, I, I like seeing that roster come together, and I and I even like especially it's almost a little game at the start of each title sequence of who did they nab. 
Because there's a little trick. No matter how important the characters are, they're only going to get the legacy actors up first. So they're going to show, you know, Karen Gillan's name before whoever plays Iron Man because, you know, she was part of the OG clan. So it's kind of a little guessing game of, oh, who, who actually made it? Oh, the, Mark Ruffalo, he's doing his own voice. And, oh, they couldn't get Tom Holland for whatever reason. Like, that's a fun little guessing game on its own, which I appreciated. I think, um, I don't know, there's a lot of, there's actually is a lot of Chadwick Boseman in the episode. The episodes, yeah, which in is, several episodes, yeah. Um, which is quite awesome to see. Um, I, I think overall, I, I like, I, and I probably reiterate this almost every time we talk about an MCU property now. It's like, it's getting tougher and tougher to care. But right. at the same time, what I kind of like about up until honestly the last two episodes, albeit I didn't mind the last two episodes, I actually like the stakes in them. The, but at the same time, to to counter it, I actually think it goes against what's fun about the show. If this had just been a collection of of seasons of, oh well, this is let's explore this one obscure comic idea from right. whatever this because. Obviously, you know, this is more just hypothetical. Like, it really is just hy- hypothetical stuff at this point. You know, Loki really has pretty much taken any form of um, stake of life and mortality and kind of thrown it out the window. It I agree. Matter. Loki did get rid of all the stakes when he opened up the multiverse. Yeah. Haha. Oh, were you, were you saying Loki? Like, L O W. I mean, I could do K-E-Y. both. Could be yeah, both. Could be both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Technically, it wasn't Loki who did that, but <laughs> no. But you know what? Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that show. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Much yeah. Basically. Went. Okay. Well, the show Loki got you. You've got. I thought you said low key. Oh. You know what I mean? Well, that was low key yeah, sick, yeah, bro. I get you. Well, um, no, Sylvie did it, but like, yeah, it just <laughs> yeah. That that show pretty much has now gone. Well, there's no real stakes. Like these actors now have the benefit of, and this is you know it plays obviously both into Disney's beneficial contractual hand because it now no longer has to pay actors for seven movie deals because they can go all right we'll just kill you off in this one and then when you're ready to play ball again we'll bring you back in another one you know mm-hmm. it, it very much has that level of flexibility i mean the fact of the matter we talked about it on the last time we you know, we did our black widow episode how many of those characters that quote died in yeah. infinity war and endgame are now back one way or another and it's literally all but one of them, or two of them now, which were the, one of them has very openly talked about how he doesn't. I can't want, even remember. It's, down, it's only Iron Man and Cap, Captain oh, America course. now. I was thinking more. That's obscure, it. But yeah. That's all now. Yeah. And they're in the series, just played by different actors. Yeah. So and it's like it's only a matter of time before probably Evans comes back. I reckon. I think Danny oh, G is done. I don't think either. There's no way. Chris, I, I, it's funny. There's, there is a, I think, actor on actor talk. It might have been like a variety thing on YouTube or yeah. whoever does those. But it was it was Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans, like right on the cusp of leaving. So, you know, she was doing Marriage Story. He was doing Defending Jacob, um, which was, I, I think, the same year as Endgame. And the way they talk about it, it's very like laughing and jokey, but like they're so clearly happy to be done with quote unquote the Marvel stuff. Mm hmm. And it's like, uh, I think they're so out. Or especially Scarlet, yeah. which apparently that lawsuit's been sorted, which is awesome to hear. Yeah. But um, I'm, well, it doesn't I'm really matter because be it's like another point of this episode, you could tell about these episodes where they were quickly in a in a clever kind of workaround way, they were putting um, characters that we didn't spend a lot of time together together Yeah. in this this um, show. Almost, as a, almost like as a focus group, like, oh, let's see what happens if we put 
Mark Ruffalo with whatever. I know it wasn't Tom Holland doing the voice, but yeah. that zombie episode was very much like, let's put a bunch of these guys who never really spent that much time together, put them together so yeah. we can just have yeah. that uh, in mind. In you Gibson. know what this should be a what if of if, if Hulk and, and bloody Black Widow got together? Because they dropped that arc so fast after Age of Ultron. I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> no. Uh, that's, that's what the, if that's what the... if we stopped caring about yeah, MCU stuff? Exactly. If only they still get us. I mean, this is for but well, they do get us to an extent. But we didn't talk about it. We neither saw Shang Chi. No, um, I keep meaning to, and I I just don't have time. So at I, this I, point, I, it's going to just come to Disney Plus. And this is the thing. It kind of we're kind of in this world where I think you know, at least us on this show, we're really slowing down. I mean, we've gotten to the point now where we've started lumping these conversations together because we don't really... And the fact that you watched four and then watched five and I watched nine in one hit, like, that we weren't right. watching them week by week. No. We're beyond that. I haven't now. watched any... Well, I won Division, I watched week to week because I actually liked that show. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only exception. There you go. But, yeah. Anyway, so the the other thing that I saw... It's funny, this is probably I should have led with this, to be honest. I sat down and watched Squid Game from start to finish. Ooh. Um, I think, for the most part, it's very excellent. I think the pilot episode... That first episode is actually like one of my favorite pilots of all time. Wow. The writing is so good. And I think it's a bit of a shame because I think the the season really peaks around episode six. Everyone knows that's like the infamous like episode six. Everyone knows what that means when you're talking about Squid Game. But then I think from there it kind of declines. And not for any like natural reason. It's not like that's like the natural point of the story where things like get slow or boring. It's just the decisions they started making immediately after that. Mm. Like I don't want to get too specific, but they start bringing in these like rich English characters or, or char- American characters that speak English who just like start overly narrating and explaining each game from that point on. I'm like, where did this come from? It's awful. And it's, you know, it's, it's obviously Korean trying to do English. So it sounds really bad. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen the other way around. I'm sure it does. It's like when you watch um, that Thai film, uh, Bad Genius, mm. and the characters go to Sydney and all the Australian characters sound Russian. It's just that weird, like, translation thing. Okay. So it's like they do a lot of stuff like that in just the last couple of episodes. So, like, why would you do that? But I'm, I'm jumping ahead into the negatives. I think the show's overall really excellent. I thought the production design was really unique. I love the characterization of, of the main character. I think he's five, four, five, six. That's, like, his number in the game. He ends up being, like, the last player. Um, so there are 456 players throughout the whole thing. Um, his characterization is excellent in the first... Uh, episode and i especially love you learn about like sort of not a gambling addiction problem but like he has a problem with holding on to money and and constantly trying to you know bet on himself to to win and a bit of an uncut gems vibe if you mm-hmm. will if you want to get into that but just like he's pure childlike joy there's a scene where a kid helps him win the claw game to get like a, a, a toy for his daughter and like he's pure joy when he wins is like that's like the moment you're like i fall you fall in love with the character like they nail moments like that so well you know and I talked recently about um, it wasn't even just Fall Guy there was another film I talked about recently where the characterization was just so poor like I didn't buy oh, oh The Guilty the yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal film where it's like all the personal drama or the character drama could not care less for it but here they it's just like those little twists those little subtle things they do that make me care about it um, so I love I love Squid Game. I think the the violence in it's awesome. I think the writing in it, for most of it, is excellent. I think it's interesting that this is so popular, because 
I feel like that's a trend with these sort of Battle Royale-esque films and shows. You've got, like, The 100, which I think that's what that is, if I'm not mistaken. You've got things like The Hunger Games. Like, these all kind of yeah. blow up. I think it's it's interesting. I mean, it has the benefit of being accessible by Netflix. Uh, yeah, that's true. We are still rising. I think since Parasite, people may be a little bit more open to a foreign language situation. Yeah. It definitely has the appeal of... From watching the trailer, it's got the colourful vibrancy. And yeah, I yeah. do think the Battle Royale side plays into it because um, I, I like I don't think... I mean, we had a whole trend of this sort of stuff with the Hunger Games and it, yeah. with its success at the time. But yeah, Battle Royale, people just like seeing people duke it out. I mean, that's why the Purge films have like eight, despite the fact that half of them, most of them are terrible. Right, yeah. People just... No, I think you're on to something. And like, you look at like The Walking Dead, you look at Game of Thrones, like, people love that yeah. stuff because they're favorite characters are dying yep they're like putting themselves into that situation we like feeling miserable yeah no it's so true and it's funny because i think you're spot on as well about the fact that we're accepting korea cinema in a more worldwide way now uh, or with more open arms because of like the impact however obviously what you're talking about that shift in those later episodes with bringing these english-speaking characters in might that might be almost like they weren't ready to fully commit just own the fact i I don't know about that because like in terms of the story it's it's a natural part of the story Okay. Bringing these characters in, and it makes sense that they they speak English. It's just like that natural. When there's too much dialogue spoken in English, when that's not the native language by you know this cast and crew, and there's so much of it, and it sticks out, and the writing itself is unnecessary because mm. now they're just over-explaining what are otherwise very simple childlike games. I mean, every everyone knows now the iconography of the first game, you know, with the red light, green light. Everyone has seen it, and it's ingenious that that's the first thing that they show that's in the pilot episode because that is clearly from an iconography standpoint that's what everyone remembers mm. and that's the first I, thing I have to give see. it a watch yeah sure. oh, I, I think you'll really dig it I really do but the idea is it's, it's not even just that game but all the games they're so simplistic you know I, I will spoil one of them one of them is a tug, and, a tug and war like that's the game and if you if you fail then you just die so the simplicity of the games it eliminates the need to explain the structure or anything like that because it's all about character. It's about how people are reacting to life and death mm. situations. But then in the second half of the show, you have characters just narrating it like a bloody AFL commentator. And it's like, I'm not listening to the radio. I'm seeing it. I already know who these characters are by this point. Yeah. You know, this far into the, it's like, I know who's important to the story, who's not, you know, what stakes are there for who's going to die first. Very interesting. Yeah. It, yeah. I just, I don't know, and I don't know if that's a commentary on their commitment. It feels very authentic. Like, it feels like a very authentic Korean show mm. that they didn't anticipate it exploding on this worldwide scale. And I think the director's talked about this because he's been trying to get the show off the ground since 2008. And he and you know got constant rejections, and that's a story that's been going around for ages now. And he says, and I completely agree with him, this wouldn't have done nearly as well 10 years ago. This is only exploding now because of your right, the accessibility, the open arms we have to international films and shows. Well, progressive towards open arms. I don't think yeah. we're quite there yet. The fact that the mainstream audience is willing to just accept a predominantly foreign language show is is obviously definitely from a legacy of what Parasite offered because people are now starting to go, oh. I can watch something with subtitles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just oh, look. I'm happy that this is blown up and that the majority of people are watching it with the subtitles. Mm. Little key note though, if you, so, obviously I recommend you watch it in Korean with the English subs. 
but don't put the captions on. Now, the difference between the captions or closed captions and subtitles is obviously they're having brackets, the descriptive sounds. Sure. So like door closes or grunt. Uh, those things that if you are actually legitimately hard of hearing, that's what you would need For to sure. watch it. Those are apparently very inaccurate translations. Um, or they don't do the translation justice. So definitely watch it in Korean. Only if you have to, basically. Yeah, exactly. Only if it's literally a necessity. Yeah. Otherwise, just watch the subs um, in Korean and then it, it, it translations a lot better. Mm. Um, which is funny because we've talked about that before, watching foreign films where, like, is what we're reading actually what's being said? <laughs> we can never know sometimes, but... Um, well, yeah. the dramas. So check it out. That's it for me for the week. I've actually that was actually a pretty decent week. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. No dramas. Well, do you have anything you like to add in the career section, or are you ready to move into the film of the week? Um, I'll quickly mention we sort of joked about this back in our pig episode. We did. Um, I'll clarify a little bit more because I keep talking about how busy I'm and everything. Um, so I did mention how I I sort of quit or resigned a job that I had. So yes, I'll quickly go into detail about how. You know, over the last several months, I've been working essentially three different jobs. I won't go into too much about which each job was, uh, but the one that was more geared towards event videography um, and uh, weddings in particular. Streaming. Um, yeah, live streaming as well. But then, you know, all that jazz is photography as well involved in everything. Um, I did quit that or I resigned a couple of weeks ago, um, which I can focus now more on, on some of the VR stuff that I'm doing, which I don't think I've ever talked about on the show. Not excessively. Uh, no, I don't think so. But um, yeah, it's just uh, I figured it was worth mentioning because hey, sliding so, doors. Well, that's it. You know, some, sometimes you get into a job that sounds great on paper in the sense that you know you're doing what you love. I'm I'm editing and filming, and this is great. And I'm getting paid for it and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like you also got to remember to look after yourself if you're in a job that sure. is taken away from other things that you're doing or is is uh. Well, not every job's a good fit. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's it. Um. I was worth mentioning. No which, dramas. Um, I might get more specific later and later in time, Zeke. Later when you're more comfortable with it. Yeah. No dramas. But until then, it's time for our film of the week, Jake. But what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Nitram. life of isolation and frustration, a young man develops an unexpected friendship with a reclusive heiress. When that relationship meets a tragic end, his loneliness and anger culminates in the most nihilistic and heinous of acts. Mm, a bit more context on that logline <laughs> compared to last week. Yeah. Were you sure. were you intentionally like didn't look into what this was or did you know what this film was? Did you know what it was about? Um No well I got told that there was a film coming out about uh, uh, the events of the Port yeah, Arthur Port massacre. Arthur, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but was not aware until um, literally the the day of suggesting it on the show. I think was oh, okay. um, uh, was my the motivation behind it. Um, I knew it got positive reviews and it did really well at Cannes, and it was an Australian film. Yeah, I just so, read it then. Best actor. That's huge. Yes, and we'll huge. obviously be talking about. Uh, him a little later in Caleb the show. Caleb Landry Jones, who's actually... Yo, I'm going to read some of the films he's in. He's in Free, Free Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. He's in Social Network, Get Out, Florida Project, No Country for Old Men, 
this guy's in every film we've ever watched. Yeah. <laughs> we almost don't really, like, notice He's him. He's American. At, least, yeah, at he... least in this performance, yeah. Um, it's incredible. Apparently, the other piece of trivia was in he was in isolation while waiting to shoot the film uh, in America, and he watched old, show, old episodes of Neighbours and Home and Away oh. <laughs> to get an idea of the accent. Oh, that's cool. So that's really like interesting. That. Um, yeah, so this film, obviously, we, we talked about. Uh, uh, obviously, now it's... Yeah, winning Best Actor, which is, is huge for an Australian film. Um, I feel like I might have known that. At um, Khan's, because then that really kind of pushes us into that conversation of, oh, will we be seeing him around awards time too um, when we're pushing into Oscar season? Because Khan's obviously being one of those big scalps yeah. for Best Actor. So That would be, ooh. I didn't even think about that, this film being up for like Golden Globes and Oscars. It's tough to think that because I... I didn't do a whole lot of research on this film after I I watched it in I mean we saw it together last night and I I knew it was involving something to do with an Australian shooting. I didn't mm. know if it was a school shooting or anything like that. And I'm guessing this is going to be a pretty heavy podcast so you know yes. if you've seen the film and you went through that that was definitely one of the most um uncomfortable walkouts ever. For sure. That was a very quiet credit we, sequence. Just to, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, because, obviously, this event, um, this is going to be, obviously, quite heavy subject matter. Yeah. Um, and this film, you know, it kind of comes in with the same sort of precedent as our Nightingale episode. Um, yeah. I think both of us would recommend watching this film if you have the opportunity to, which it will be. Uh, we'll discuss where you might be seeing that later on outside of cinemas. But, <laughs> yeah. um, obviously, the subject matter is particularly if you're Australian listening to the show, is quite hefty. Yeah. Um, uh, universally, I think it, it still carries the weight, but obviously in Australian culture, this this event particularly, I talked about this off the air, was was a culturally shifting moment in our history. Yeah. Um, uh, it led to one of the quickest uh, legislative turnarounds on, on gun control, um, which it does... Uh, uh, bookmark at the ending the um obviously the heinous acts and what that led to but um i think culturally it shaped our ideology um whether you were alive at the time or you weren't which obviously jake and i were not alive at the time when this happened no it's happened about a year before both of us either were. of us were born yeah so but i think the mentality of, of guns and and gun violence here in australia it's it's led to quite a huge um, shift in ideologies um, to the point where we're quite alien to a lot of our Western world counterparts mm. um, in our perspective on guns and, and gun violence, um, you know, because we do have a different outlook on it. And and we're going to talk, we'll probably talk a little bit more about the message at the end of the film um, yep. and how it might. Um, oh, you know, prompt a bit of discussion, but yeah, this this film is really good, but it is obviously quite heavy. As particularly, we did have people walk out during this screening. Um, yeah, shockingly early. <laughs> yeah, which, <laughs> we'll which, that, which yeah. was interesting because the thing that might have triggered them walking out wasn't the thing that wasn't this exact topic we're talking about. It was more talking, um, particularly the, I guess the the sociological side and societal viewpoint on on people of, who have some form of mental disability mm. um, was what I think prompted them to leave, which is a different topic that we're going to probably jump into. Yeah, but, yeah. 
Well, to be more specific, I mean, that's the thing, this jump right into spoilers and this podcast. Like, I mean, we both recommend you definitely see this film if for you sure. have the stomach for it. Not that there's anything particularly graphic or violent in it. It's just like the topic, the subject matter is just like g- grim. It is a very grim Yeah, film. and I, I think going into the film, there's a very good chance you're going to know where this film's going to end up. And, and even seeing that build towards that moment or, or the, the straw breaking the camel's back is quite uncomfortable. It's yeah. not an, it is not an easy ride and there's not, not really a reprieve from start to finish in this film. No, certainly not. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's no single laugh in this film, for example. No. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah, uh, so with with that in mind, the scene we were specifically talking about is um, sort of the... You can call it an assault, I guess, between the car salesman and then uh, Nitram, who's obviously messing around and, and punching the, the steering wheel. And that was the scene that caused these two people to leave, which I, I felt was weird considering they did not know what the topic was going to be. Did they not know what they were walking into initially? Mm. Um, and we didn't notice anyone else leave. Maybe people did leave behind us. There were two you know? people behind us that left. Too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Do you know when? Or? Yeah. So that came at the... Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the scene now. I think it came at the uh, scene in which um, Nitram is physically abusing his dad. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that is a very interesting that scene. That is also quite a hefty scene. Um, I did notice. I heard two people and looked up, and they were oh, already fascinating. Yeah. So okay. we had about we had about oh, I'd say fifteen, sixteen people in our cinema. So we lost about a quarter of the audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spr- it was and then nice and after, sprinkled throughout. And then after the film, when uh, you were feeling quite thirsty, you went to go buy a drink. Yeah, because I, I hadn't had a drink all day. I was so thirsty, so I, I went up to the usher and uh, can I just get a coke? And he basically. He started pouring and asked, oh, you just walked out of Nitram, right? Like, yeah, yeah, oh, here you go. You just gave me a free drink. <laughs> and I don't know if that's just like, I'm already a paying customer or is he used to people walking out of this film feeling miserable? I'm going to go with <laughs> the second of those two options. Mm. I, I definitely think that there is a psychological consideration there, which is my, may have been something they should have done with the Nightingale because I don't think they really gave you a lot of forewarning with that film. Yeah, and- I think I think because the Nightingale... That scene in particular, we all know what scene that is, is quite early on. Mm-hmm. So I think by the time that you get to the end of the film and, you know, revenge has been served in you know whatever form it was served in, um, you know, you're feeling less like crap. And I feel like this film very intentionally ends on a note that's super grim, super... Like, the, the, the silence was just like... Oh, it's just brutal. was palpable, you know? It's just brutal. And it wasn't even imagery that caused that. It's just like that feeling of what is being said to you. Anyway, but yeah, I think yeah, it's important to know this is a very grim film. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I was pretty much for the most part fascinated with it. I thought, like I said, with Callum Landry Jones's performance as Nit Ram, I thought it was spectacular. I think you agree. It's one of the best performances I've seen this year. Yeah, look, it, it's probably sitting right up there. Obviously, we we, we talk about uh, uh, it's probably the best. It probably is the best performance. I think the only the only one that might sit in the same uh, is probably Carrie Mulligan's performance for me from from Promising Young Woman. But oh, you, yeah. you would probably even account that as last year's performance. Well, it, this that, year. that's already run for its award cycle. So yeah, so you we're talking, talking about, about our that. current award cycle. That's not you know exclusive to our show. Mm. Um. Yeah, this is the best performance that's come out of this year for sure. Mm. Um, it is. 
he is uncomfortable. Um, I'll be at times misunderstood, and and the range of emotions that you feel with his character, I I, I like to I like to stress. I don't think you ever are meant to feel sorry for him, right? Um, and or empathetic towards him. I think you. The underst- I think if anything, you're supposed to feel quite empathetic towards his parents. Um, I think his parents are is is the and and I think that's where um, because their their management of the situation, I think it's interesting when they feel like they're they're always they have a child that's very clearly you know got some disturbance issues and they've had to always kind of manage that energy and. Um, I think that they just get worn down over the duration of the film. Um, and it kind of runs its... And there, there's a fear there, I mm. think. Um, and it's highlighted in, in latter stages in particular. I think his performance is really great, but I actually think the, the quartet of all four of them right. um, being you know, Caleb, so obviously Caleb Landry, Drones, Judy Davis, Essie Davis, and Anthony Lapunlia. Um, playing obviously mother, uh, the mother, the he- Helen, and and the dad, yeah. who also don't have build names. Yeah, just mother, father, and Helen. Uh, I think I think people know Helen. Yeah, it was like sort of an innocent part of the story, I guess. So I think all four of them have fantastic performances. Um, yeah, uh, and really capture. I uh, I think one of it's funny because his he does steal the show, but you know, not to spoil my highlight scene, I think it's not his scene that is my favorite scene in this film it's a scene held by one of the other three characters so yeah bit of a tease oh that's fair enough well i think it's funny you touched on that a little bit in terms of the the parenting aspect i think his performance is so good because there's there's so many nuances in his behavior that i don't want to say i find relatable at all but it's like i've had very tough moments through primary school and high school of, of isolation of anger and not to say that I've ever been as dark a place as this person has been, thankfully, but just some of the nuances in like the breakdown, you know, the way he would kick a car and then like beat the horn just to create that. First off, it's all in service of the sound, the score, which I thought the soundscape in this film was excellent. Like it's so, it keeps you on edge yeah. in a really disturbing way. And there's so many, even, even like him playing the piano or Helen teaching him to play the piano in like the most simplest way, but just like how how much those sounds sting almost. Yeah, it's it's a it's a perfect amalgamation of of, of diegetic soundscaping and 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 even silences. The the mm. there are moments of just pure motivated but uncomfortable silences that just help build the character more. Um, you know, the crashing of the waves and. Mm. You know, when he's standing out looking at the beach. Yeah. Yeah. It, or even it, him knocking, he just knocks super loudly. Super, in, in such an aggravated mm. state. But that's part of it as well, is the sound. It's just everything's loud and, and like, oh, it makes you kind of clench up a little bit. I, I think what I like about this film the most, um, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when we walked out, it, it really is a character study. Yeah. Um, And to... it. it Although the subject matter and, and the historical relevancy um, of the event for for particularly Australian viewers is there and it, it's resident, it's only really becomes more apparent in the, the last act of the film that that's 
like where we're, whereas for the most part the film is is purely focusing on understanding the intricacies and 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 really exploring this incredibly um like you said a uh, figure that's in quite a dark place mm. and trying to understand what well, him and the characters around him are trying to understand him yeah um and do the best by him but the fact is he is just a volatile force that yeah. is often at you know for the most part beyond help um well it's it's interesting because i feel like the film almost explores that with the way helen treats him now there's a lot of enabling in that uh but i feel like th- there's almost a, a juxtaposition between the way his mother treats him and then how helen treats him i just want to double check it is helen right yeah yeah helen um well i think they're sort of doing the mother is showing more of the tough love side of things well i i'm oh, sorry not to no, interject. i was gonna say well you you make your point um Tough, tough love is an interesting thing with this because I don't think she is trying to show him tough love. I think she's uh, she's honestly kind of weathered down even by the start of the film. I think she's gotten to a point where she knows the best way of 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 controlling him is probably the the best way at this at this point in time. I, I think that becomes very apparent when she's talking to the doctor about getting the prescription, right? Um, and very much is just like. Yeah, he needs the medication. Like, even though the the doctor's trying to rationalize and sort of like gauge if he really needs it still, does he really need it? And she goes, yes, he absolutely does. Because for her, it was more about control, I think. Managing this um, potential volcanic situation from, from... Whereas when... And then when he meets Helen and Helen starts to... Does spend more time with Helen. Helen enables, you know, like enables coming up some of his more worse, more erratic behaviors, i.e., like giving him a car for no reason and such like that. I think that that's where the the dominoes start to slowly fall. Because- yeah, well, it's it's two drastically different modes of parenting in that way, and and we're gonna have an interesting discussion. We might as well have it right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, the scene when they talk to each other, and it's a question of is he a husband or is he a son? Yeah, and I reckon there's a perfect segue to talk about it now. I pretty much the entire time saw it as a motherly-son relationship. Now, I know there's some scopophilic stuff that's in there that I definitely don't um, don't want to uh, disregard, so to speak, but that whole thing of, like, giving him a car and, you know, she is this wealthy woman and it, it, it's I liked sort of the, the personable part of her that is wealthy but, uh, you know, still sort of this kind, lonely person with lots of dogs and doesn't care, like, she'll just go out and buy a car, and, oh, we'll buy him a car, too. I, I feel like those things are very motherly of her, um, and I think they're just different parenting approaches, where eventually she sees the faults of enabling him too much by, oh, now the gun's involved. He has, mm. like, a BB gun or an air rifle, and she's like, this is where I draw the line. Um, but I know for you, you don't see, you see it a little more morally blended. If that's the best way to, if that's the best way to put it, <laughs> we'd laugh in this whole review. So oh, congratulations, Jake. thank you. you, made it. you I made did it. it. You somehow found a way. I can stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I definitely think there is an ambiguity, uh, at least in the first stage of their relationship. Okay. I think. A lot of the the negative behavior in which I'm talking about, like I, I do believe his mum, Nitrem's mum, um, 
was at the was at the point at the start of the film where it was about control. It was about and not in a not in a I need to have power over my son. It honestly, I think a lot of it with all three perennial figures, there was fear there. There is an underlying tone of fear. Um and Helen kind of comes into that relation with Nit Ram um kind of more naive um right. to it because she hasn't been around the whole life. Um, like the other two have. The other two, yeah, Nitram's mum and dad raised this, you know, yeah. this child, this child that's now, you know, in young adulthood and are very aware of his best and worst traits, predominantly his worst traits. Right. Um, and honestly, you know, even at the start of the film, you can see there's that weatheredness there, you know, when he's acting out and the dad saying to the mum, oh, do you, you just you keep pushing him, you keep escalating, like you're the one who's escalating it for no reason. Like, right. It almost like they know he's that chaotic force and they're trying to contain. So I think at first she definitely sees him as, a, as an object of, of, of sexual desire, there. Mm. Um, particularly when he was like mowing the lawn and she's still sitting in the window, like looking at him. But th- there is a transformation there. I, I think as the longer time Helen spends with Nit Ram, I, I definitely think the transformation comes to a more, uh, paternal uh, relationship. She becomes right. a more paternal figure. She learns that she can say no to him. Um, the guns is definitely the first key like moment where she goes, "You're not spending my money on guns. Like yeah. that, we're not having guns in my house. Like I need to accentuate this is my house. It's not our house." That's when it becomes a a, a mother son relationship. But yeah, um, basically because she but her her drives and and definitely come from the fact that at her core no matter which relationship she's seeking she is inherently lonely yeah. like she is chronically lonely um and completely you know the fact that she has eight or nine dogs and you know her house large and mansionous is quite unkept and not well looked after, you mm. know, she's, um, the lawns are too long and, and the house is kind of a bit of a, a cluttered, not cluttered mess, but a, a disin, discombobulated mess, I think would be the best way of describing it. And, um, he comes into her life and, and she kind of latches on and, and kind of coddles him because really the only thing she's getting out of it, the most important thing she's getting out of it is a kind of a cure or a padding of lonely, uh, mm. her loneliness being quelled because, you know, at this point in time, you know, she's clearly, you know, she's, I think she does say she's 52 or something. She says okay, she's I might have missed f- that, yeah. early fifties um, at some point, uh, which was a key indicator of her, her maturity. Obviously, Nit Ram is in his early twenties. Um, so there's a very clear gulf in the age. So the the follow up question from Nit Ram's mum of are you a, are you looking for a husband or a son? It's yeah. like it's a valid point because at that point in time, all they know is this woman's come along and yeah. No, I, I agree. That scene is absolutely excellent because you're right. From their point of view, they have no idea who this woman is. They have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Even when even when he says I'm going to go live with her, they're like, wait, who? They haven't even heard of this woman. Yeah. So it's like, I think you make a great argument for that. And I can't deny that those shots of her peering through the window, 
They're in the film. Yeah. And they're in the film for a reason. The, and, so, the big, and the big key, I mean, the key is when she's sitting down playing chopsticks with him for the first time, she yep. says, you look like a movie star. And it's that weird yeah. sort of infatuation there. Like, it's almost like, you know, because we find out, you know, Helen's obsessed with Hollywood and the starlet and that weird uh, classic 50s, 60s Hollywood. We catch her multiple times watching these films and of actresses and starlets going yeah. to the, the big city and stuff. So there's clearly a romanticism with that. And There's a great scene where we it's her time we see her, like, with, I think, a wig and mm. like, the makeup and everything and just, like... And stage makeup. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great, like, little look into her desire because it, it's all visual. It's all mm. completely visual, what you're describing now, which is, is excellent. It's not too overt. Mm. As you think, this film gets a lot of really clever things right in the edit and the visual I storytelling. I think it's visual storytelling. As well. We haven't even talked about, like, the visual side, but I, I think yeah. it's it's an unsung hero. Mm. And, it, I mean, I, I think act... This is and this is the 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 beauty of, of cinema, especially. It's like an actor's performance really is as only as good as the camera sometimes that's capturing it. Yeah. Um. Because that actor could perform their heart out, but if it the the camera works dodgy or the lighting's dodgy, which is which is funny because this film is quite low lit. There's a lot of very dark moments. A lot of backlighting. Um, a lot of backlighting and a lot of times where people are blocking each other. Yeah. Where faces are hiding behind other faces and and. It still works though. Almost yeah. these like little peaks. You're almost trying to like lean over to see, well, like the, to get a glimpse of their face. The earlier stages of the film too, with with Nitram, they obscure the vision quite mm. a bit. They prevent us capturing his face for a good. Uh, like he's kind of a an enigma, like yep. a shadow. It feels like, and it's but it always feels like an imposing shadow. Like his presence, you know, he kind of. He, I find it it's so interesting that they've created this kind of this dark energy around this this young man yeah. almost to in, insinuate what is to come. Um, well, that that's the interesting part because there is this looming sense of, you know, someone's going along. And, and like I was saying earlier, I knew there was some sort of shooting related. To, I wasn't exactly sure which shooting. And it completely clicked for me when the word semi-automatic in when he first visited the gun mm-hmm. shop. It was like immediately it clicks like... I know what this is. Um, because, yeah, I kind of intentionally avoided that. I wanted to see how the film took me there. And I think that's interesting is, yeah, there's an impending tone of things that are going to come. But there is no immediate res scene. The whole thing is told linearly. So we just start with... I mean, technically, we should clarify, we start with the archival footage of him as a kid having burnt himself. What a clever... Thing. And I think that's the real footage. I could be it mistaken. Is. Okay, cool. Beautiful. Um, that's great. First off, it excuse the 100 million bloody logos of the companies that worked on this film. Mm. Jesus, like a, it was like a lamb all over again. How many bloody people worked on this thing? Well, and it also, what it does is it creates this thing that, and this really important um, moment that these people that carry out these heinous acts, mm. and they shouldn't be forgiven for it, no way whatsoever. But to play that, that footage beforehand is is to show that they didn't start that way right right um but there's there's almost a carelessness and happiness to and i think it it ends on that note of like oh i'm gonna i'm still gonna play with fireworks i'm still gonna do that like that their personality is so joyful and they are not self-aware of of the of what they're going to commit in the future i mean it was really interesting to see yeah, um, the but, playing with fireworks thing is definitely a, yeah. But but a to that point, like point. narratively, 
there's nothing that literally insinuates to what's going to happen. Like, if you watch this film completely cold, you might not know where it's going to end. You know it's headed in a dark direction. Yeah. yeah I, mean, the, 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 I appreciate that. I think the fact that they withhold so long on him committing a violent act... Um, the first overt violent act, physically violent act he mm. does is towards his father. Right. Um, in which, uh, you know, and not to not condone it or anything, unfortunately, at that point, um, it, it, I think that, it, like I was saying with both his parents at this point, they would worn down to a point, the fact that his mum just sort of looks on at that point. Yeah, I was, that was very interesting. No interference, just pure shows how done, how defeated yeah. they were purely. And I mean, of course, in 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 shortly after that, we you know the the father commits suicide, and um, some of the exchanges between um the mother and and Nitram are, are fascinating mm. because um just his complete and utter disconnection, like he he really was sociopathic yeah no, that's exactly what i was thinking because um, he he admits to not missing his father like he's and that moment like his dad is clearly suffered major depression is not well and proceeds to beat him to the point where he just gives up and goes i'm gonna get up i'm gonna be up yeah well my thinking with, with the mother's inaction was a sense of she thinks this is gonna work this is gonna get him out of his rut mm, no i think it's pure submission mm-hmm. i think it's fear like and he commands that fear, and I think that what the importance of the earlier parts of the film with with power and stuff is they knew that that balance was very delicate, mm. and you know those earlier scenes with the mother and and Helen, they they just clearly highlight how potentially dangerous this individual is, and maybe that honestly it does feel like at times his mother and father are kind of hoping something is going to happen that's going to end almost their, like, uh, well, uh, suffering, I think, to an extent. Um, See, I, I kind of disagree with that in the sense that they clearly don't want him to leave when, on a silver platter, the opportunity for him, like, I'm going to live with this woman now. Like, they don't want him to leave. I think they still want him in that environment. Mm. So I don't necessarily think they're they're praying for something to happen to to get rid of him. For example, I think it's duty of care though. Maybe mm-hmm. they they feel like they are literally, and they kind of prove it. They are the only ones that can actively ensure that he doesn't. Um, you know, it comes back to like the moments where he's like earlier in the film where he's lighting those fireworks and those poppers in front of the primary school students. Yeah. and giving them to despite the fact that and, and apparently that the, the the teacher that comes over and. Tells me can't do it. They were the same age. They're the same age. They were mm. in the same. They went to school together. So, you know, and the, the father's the one who has to pull him over and get him in the car, and then he proceeds to just honk the horn, yeah, irrefutably. And it's like it feels like they are the ones who hold that sort of that destructive force at bay. And over the course of the film, we kind of see their last defenses just drop. And I think um, that's that's what. I think is is really important to kind of take away yeah. from their, their family dynamic. I think the thing I would love to talk about now, uh, there, there's plenty we're going to get into. I think towards I guess the the third act of the film, but I want to talk about this idea of like what does Ram first off want, 
and also this idea of, of this film, even though it's a bit of a character piece. And I feel like this film could really only exist in the vacuum of audiences wanting to get an insight into who could do something like this yeah, and what could lead a person to this. And I think, I think the film is beautifully vague about it. There is no one thing you can point to and say, this caused the massacre. And I think... It, it beautifully flows through several different instances that's like painting a, a portrait. It's like, this is just a portrait of his life. And and I feel like the, the plotting is almost not even... Like, it, there is a, a narrative thrust towards the event. You know, and you talked about off the show how there's a point when he just starts carrying, you know, all these loaded weapons with him everywhere he goes. So there is that sense of leading to that moment. True. But I, I don't see that as... That's an interesting point to bring up because mm. I, I don't see that as him snapping at any moment. I, I see no. that as he thinks it's cool to have these around him. Right. Um, it's a very much a... It's a self... Honestly, just a self-empowerment moment. It's why he carries a surfboard around. You know, he knows nothing about surfing and stuff. It, yeah, it's the it was the flavor of the moment. He suddenly really liked. He wanted a real gun, and then got went out and bought a bunch of guns because he had had the money to. And 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 I, I think that the reason why that's so uncomfortable is we know it comes back to that subjective discourse that we have. We know there. where it's leading. Yeah. We know he has those weapons in the bag. So when he's walking around. A, a target or whatever that term it looked like a target it's not a target but like a, a, a oh the, like the shopping it was a shopping it was a yeah. shopping mall that yeah. um, resembled like a target Kmart Walmart whatever you want to call it um a uh, superstore um mm. so walking <laughs> walking around that and he's got this big black bag and it's like yep. everyone around him doesn't know what he's got in that bag we do yeah and even in the latter stages when he goes to port arthur and stuff it's the fact that he's carrying that bag and we know what's in it and we're waiting for that moment to come and the fact that we know that moment even if we came in completely blind we know what's in that bag yeah within the confines of the film that's incredibly uncomfortable yeah because this character who we know and have seen on multiple occasions who clearly has a form of 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 mental um disability and is incredibly volatile in his uh, swing mood swings mm. and behavior is carrying, you know, these weapons of destruction and stuff. And yeah. Well, you're holding the pin of the grenade at that point. And it's like, <laughs> if you go into this, for example, I didn't realize, I'm going to say, it, I didn't realize this was, I thought it was a school shooting. So I was waiting for the scene where we go to a school. Mm-hmm. So, for me, there was that extra anxiety of, like, when is that pin going to be, you know, pulled off? Now, I didn't think those scenes when he's walking around, the, like, the shopping center, I didn't... I, I knew it wasn't going to be then. But you're right, it's that, it's that constant build-up. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like, once you get to that stage, you know, you're, you know, it's beyond that... It's beyond the point of no return yeah. during this chunk. And I think, yeah, the fact that there is... The, the only thing... The only thing you could tie, and I'm pretty sure this is, of course, what happened, is he kills the couple who bought the house his father was trying to buy. Now, that is something that is well, premeditated. Only, yeah, it's the only premeditated one. Yeah, from, from this idea of, like, these people have wronged his father. Now, they don't know that. They wouldn't necessarily know who tried to buy the house before them. Yeah. They are innocent people. In the in the conf- Yeah, they don't, they're definitely innocent. Yeah. Um, they just... I think... 
um, that is the only time that there is kind of really, like you're talking about this kind of loose narrative thread, and that's okay that there's a loose narrative thread. I don't think it's a loose narrative thread. I just think that's the one thing you could say, this led to this. If this didn't yeah, happen, he I, wouldn't kill I, those I'm people. I'm talking about loose narrative thread. I'm talking about, like you said, that loose motivation. To There's only... Right. There is no coherent, like, this is the event that triggered, um, you know, this. It's like, you exactly. know, exactly, yeah. You know, going to take a fictionalized example, um, let's take The Joker, for instance. Yeah. It's like we. This is a comparable film to Joker, okay. unironically. <laughs> yeah. It's a very much a fictionalized, and we're not going to ever, you know, com- should never, tr- we should avoid comparing uh, a real event that actual people passed yeah. away and, and or murder, were murdered um, in to the fictionalized, albeit, oh, and, and at times incredibly exaggeratory Joker. Yeah. I think um, I know exactly what you're going to say as well. But we can clearly see there yeah. are points that trigger his his point yeah. of snapping. Like, very clear, that's leading to that, and that's Ex- leading yep. to that, and that's leading to that. So when he... He kills, kills this person because this person this, made fun of him. Yeah. Clear as day. Clear. It's yeah. very clear... A to B, whereas here, the only time that happens is exactly it with this yeah. couple, where, albeit they're still innocent, they were murdered, you know, horribly, and, and that's horrible. But it's the, when I talk about that's the only direct motivation, because, yeah, that did contribute, you know, we very clearly have an earlier scene where the father sits down with Nitram and goes, I really need this win. Like, yeah. He really needs this win, because yeah. he has been beaten down his life and exhausted by looking after his son yeah um to this point and he needs this because he feels like this can a best manage his son because it's space it's yep. out in the middle of, and it also finally gives him for probably the first bit of reprieve that he's had in his life mm-hmm. and when he doesn't get that it gets taken away from him he spirals and he has a you know and to the point where yeah, he falls into depression. Falls into depression and eventually uh, commits suicide. And, and of course, from, from Nitram's perspective, he all he sees is, oh, well, the this my dad really wanted this property that was taken away from him wrongly, um, and I'm going to take it out on those who took it from him, yeah. basically. Whereas that's obviously a very black and white, linear way of looking yeah. at it. No, but that that's um, it. That's the perspective he has. That's the only perspective Nick Ram can get on this situation. So, yeah. But the rest of it, the the sporadic and, and random nature of, of the rest of the killings that he went on to go do is is kind of more frightening in its own yeah. right. Well, it develops from this very broad, uncontrolled sense of anger to someone who's angry and doesn't know how to deal with that. And now you yeah. have these high-powered assault weapons you have every opportunity to take it out in this horrible way. Mm. And I, and again, I like that those things aren't really... You know, th- there's the guilt in that he he killed Helen. He is 1,000% responsible for that. Yeah. And I, I feel like there is... Some, even though we've established he has very sociopathical tendencies, you know, his lack of reaction to his to his father's death. Um, but I feel like with Helen... I mean, he, there is a scene when he's lying, he's got the neck brace... And he is just losing his shit. But do you think that's grief or do you think that's a tantrum? I mean, I reckon he feels guilty in that moment. Because he lies. He immediately lies. I was asleep. I did not kill her. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I feel like he's self-aware enough Mm. to know that. He is a pathological liar. Mm. He consistently 
even about the smallest things, yeah. lies. Like he calls himself a businessman when he goes to the travel yeah. agency. He says he can surf to the the surfer dude. I can't remember his name. Yeah. But... I want. I just want to give a shout out to them. Like, yeah, the the travel agent, the guy who sells them the first gun. Like that 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 collection of not even they're not extras at all. They're they're definitely supporting characters. Right. Like their, their performances are so straight. Like I believe them. I believe the travel agent as a travel agent, not an actor playing mm. a travel agent. It was amazingly grounded, all the performances. Like, yeah. not a single one of them feels like a caricature. And to yeah. have that from... from, from That's amazing direction and, and great writing. And particularly, I, I agree, when he went and bought his first gun, that whole sequence... That What I, I was actually going to... It's so leads, uncomfortable in its realism. Yeah. Or its casualness. And this leads yeah. exactly into the point that I was going to touch yep. on um, with that grounded realism. Is like, we take some of these other... Um, films or shows that have handled this subject matter so poorly you know mm. I, I mean first one that springs to mind that handles it terribly is like 13 reasons why right oh, end of season oh, two no. and yeah it's laughable oh, because it's God, like the yeah. way that they handle such a ridiculously tenuous and serious matter uh, where you know characters seemingly just have access to these things or are willing to act out these acts of heinousness only to have a main character talk them out of it within 10 minutes. I mean, yeah. And, and gonna... guess what? That was derived on a sexual act, a very specific one that everyone made fun of after it happened. It's, it, you know, it's deplorable. And then you take a piece like this that handles this with pure seriousness. Yeah. And is, is, is a full, there is nothing to laugh about with this film mm. and nor should there be anything to laugh about in this subject matter. And the fact that that, a show like that that was made in the last ten years. It is not yeah. a, it is not it's a dated five exa- years. Yeah. Not, exactly. Yeah. Handles it so poorly. Still to this day infuriates me. Um, and that scene, I love that we sit there. It's a good ten minute scene. It, it goes through the whole process of buying that gun. Yeah. With the fact that this, you know, Nitram is clearly not psychologically or mentally a person that should ever have had access to this mm. and the fact that he's willing to just present money and 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 you could go oh well that was a i uh, like like people might watch that and go oh well that would never have happened it's like that 100 percent would have happened yeah. it did happen yeah and that's the that's the thing it's like because we'll sit there and go like we talk about how he's socio has sociopathic tendencies he clearly has some form of a mental disability and everyone goes oh well how did he get access to assault weapons well he did <laughs> well the, the the fascinating thing is like when he interacts with all these different people whether he buys a plane ticket or buys a gun or whatever there's enough like we understand the underlining issues that are going on here but he presents himself in a way that is is passable in the mm. sense that oh have you shot a gun before yeah yeah i've shot a gun before you yeah. and then and then he kind of like he goes oh what gun did you shoot and he go and then he puts he, the word the answers into yeah, his mouth exactly yeah oh 22 yeah 22 yeah like the conversations they're having like a buy them you know like i i can imagine someone selling him a gun based on that interaction that they yeah had. And, and unfortunately it's like with both of the situations it's the capitalistic notions right mm. like at the end of the day it's that travel agent's job to sell plane tickets it's that it's that guy who owns the gun shop to sell guns i mean um, and as long as, like you said, like you said, they, they have passable interactions, you know, it's like, and we, we actually see that in consistent times in which it's people were just kind of putting words into his mouth and he goes along with it. Yeah. And the only people that ever call him out on that sort of stuff are his mum and his dad. Mm. 
Um, yeah, which are slowly leaving his uh, trajectory, if you will. Yeah, I mean that's a. Before I forget it, it's a great scene when he attempts to go to his dad's funeral in like his outfit, and the mum just refuses. Like you can't embarrass me now. Yeah, you it's have a, it's to a go. light. It's a very inappropriate outfit to be wearing at a funeral. Yeah, and to him, it's that lack of understanding because it's something that Helen said he looked good in. Yeah. So now he's going to dress in this thing that he's been reinforced. He looks nice in, yeah. or he looks like a movie star. Whereas in. if he had been with his mum at home, he would have clearly dressed appropriately. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting. Yeah. I just want to give that scene a shout out. I think this sort of leads into. We'll see how much we're going to talk about this. The the the, the specific ending of the film, and I feel like you've already mentioned like the 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 one take of him sitting down. You know, before the event happens, of course, we cut to credits before that happens, and we get our little uh, title, uh, I guess, text mm. the text that closes the film. There is a fantastic, the best, one of the best last shots of a film this year, though. Yeah, with that one, one, t- it's not just the one take, and when he gets up, they cut to after the massacre has occurred, news broadcast. Oh my god, you're right, I forgot with about a, that. With a pan one shot that rolls around the door and yep. captures his mum listening to the broadcast and almost like a sense of I knew this would happen on her yeah. face yeah um, when oh, I talk I about that yeah. and it's that I think it's the it's a mixture of uh, like horror and I, I, I honestly think it's like you know look full props to Caleb you know Landry Jones for taking out best actor but Judy Davis just kills it in this right. film. Like, kills it. Because um, her expressions of how she manages to capture both the, the horror, like I said, that horror, fear, um, kind of heartbreak, and then also mm-hmm. just reprieve and relief sometimes. Like, there's a moment, you know, she's there smoking and the bees, and this is kind of, it's just everything. It's an auditory... You couldn't, you couldn't pay me a hundred grand to, like, grab that bee-ness <laughs> like which is just festering and getting louder and louder every yeah. time we cut back to it it's just buzzing in the background and it's it's such a strong final shot with yeah. her painting kind of capturing all these emotions yeah almost like she knows that it's over like you know she's lost her husband at this point now she's definitely lost her son she is alone and that is horrifying like because of all the horrible things that have happened in such a short period of time but yeah i imagine there's a reprieve there and i think that that's definitely in that last shot yeah no i i think you're right i think there's a sense of you're right it's over i lost or like i failed but and and almost anticipating something like this to happen but Mm. Yeah, at the end of the day, like that sense of reprieve of like, okay. Well, the, it's almost like the sense of responsibility is gone. Yeah. Like, because she lost complete control of it. And that's what happened. And yeah. It's interesting. It's like getting fired from a job you don't like. Yeah. You're like, I didn't want to get fired from and I failed. Like, I'm not saying she's like, but jumping, I'm out of yeah, it. Yeah, she's not jumping for joy or feeling good about it. But no. there is that, uh, an underlying sense of, oh my God, it, like, it's over. Right, like no, no, I, I mean, it's a very fair mm. interpretation. But I wanted to bring up, and I've actually read accounts that actually kind of agree with our initial takes on this. But the sort of the uh, the the final text in the film that 
goes on to talk about you know what this did and and you know the turnover was only 12 days before they the legislative the legislation yes. yeah um which is all you know historical and, and like you said it changed the ideology of an entire nation almost immediately and it's yeah. something that I'll make the comparison again we made a it last western night. capitalistic nation too yeah and that you said that this was almost like our Australia's 9/11 in a lot of ways which obviously not as a grand as a spectacle but in and terms not, of not scope ne- I think you're probably bang on the money yeah in terms of like the heartbreak that the nation had together and and the unification of we need to do this to solve the problem. Yeah. And how in the US, it was, we need to go to war. And I think there's a lot of regret about that now, or even just 10 years after it happened. And I don't think Australia's had that regret at all. No, it's interesting to think of, of how important this moment is because it's, you know, it's been 25 years and I said this to you, it's like there hasn't been a single moment in political notion history in which we've ever wanted to challenge that ideology at yeah. all, or challenge what we did at that moment. And, I like I said to you emotionally I think it, it it resonates with all of us the the fact that for us it's a little different it's like we didn't you know we were born into a world that had just got rid of guns completely literally yeah. within a, the year um but at the same time we've now grown up in a world where it just hasn't been a thought and then we go to other western world countries where gun control is still a thing and it's such a foreign concept to us and it's yeah. so we're so we're kind of fearful of it. I mean, I know a lot of people that have traveled to the states or Canada, or a lot of the European countries that still have this, and that there is that still underlying like we have an uncomfortability towards yeah. it, and that's fascinating. Like, and it's it's interesting because like I I can name like women in their in their late teens, and then men that I know in their seventies who are equally afraid of how dangerous they, they in, in danger they feel going to the US for example yeah. living in in Los Angeles and it, that's fascinating mm. because it's like that's what this event did um not to the people that were alive not just to the people that were alive at the time but to to the, their children and the generations that proceed like ourselves and it's like i was saying to you after we left the thing it's like i honestly I don't know personally, and you said you only know like one person. I know I, I know of someone. I don't know them personally. Exactly. So it's like we don't know any. Even, okay, even then, so it's a person of a person. It's like we don't even know someone, anyone in our direct circles that's a gun enthusiast or even want remotely thinks about getting a gun. Right. Yeah. Like to, whereas you know you jump across the pond, you jump all the way over to the other side of the world, and it's like, it's pretty normal. It's like uh, that's just fascinating that yeah. this one event led to that sort of uh, legacy. And the fact that, yeah, there hasn't been an unification and long-standing unification yeah. is, is, is quite remarkable. On something that's so political and so divisive in, in the US mm. in many other countries. And I think with that preset, I think we were both quite shocked to see basically the last you know message of this film, the final bitter taste that we leave with, was basically saying Australia is not doing enough about it to this day, saying that there are more guns now than there were in 1996, that no states have fully uh, basically followed the rules that they were being told to, or the guidelines they were told to go under. I just think that is such a strange, almost inaccurate way to end this film because this is a character study. Mm. And 
like you're right, there is an extended scene that's very uncomfortable of of him buying the guns, showcasing how easy it was at the time to get the guns. The fact that he walks around and never gets questioned, never gets scanned. Like, that's in the film, but it's not the focus. And I think it's such a strange note to end this on, being like, Australia need to do better. I'm like, really? Australia hasn't done enough for gun control? Yeah, I think the more important thing to highlight is, um, because you've hit the nail on the head there. This is a case study. This is analysing a historical event, and particularly the person behind that historical event. And it's, I think it's important to put the legislative uh, post-historical context that led from the event. But that final message is the only message in this entire film that has a political agenda or an agenda behind it. The rest of it, I think, is honestly just analysing a character, mm. analysing a person and analysing that event and, the no- and some of the notions, however vague or however concise they were, that led to that event and to yeah to leave off with that uh, point that there's more guns now than ever and we need to do more about it was interestingly political in a film that kind of abstained from politics like this well they went out of the way to not show any of the, the violence to go out of the way to not name the shooter mm. to give him a fake nickname yeah as if we don't already know the name of this person yeah. there's no like i'm not saying that like this film is not pro-gun by any stretch by any but it also doesn't need to be pro-gun because of the because of the contextual historical context behind the film we know that this led to everything that we're talking about now so to weirdly leave off on a point where it's like got a notion a political notion in there it's accusational agenda. yeah it's a bit it's it's complete it kind of it does detract a little bit. It's a little frustrating. And so is what's the... Uh, you were saying, is, is that the same sort of public consensus from watching the film? Of I did read a review that did kind of say the same thing that we said, is like, like, why are they saying that? It's not even... I think they were saying it's statistically not even true. Mm. Or that the majority of the guns being owed are like legal weapons like on farms. Yeah. You know, and... and I, I just, I don't... I it, felt, it, felt, it felt weird, you know? Yeah. It felt like a film that did so well at, like, capturing... A, yeah, like you said, it had such a... Like, what we're talking about is is the film in, it, in its runtime had such a, um, like, micro-focus. It was yeah. focusing specifically on this person and the people closest to him and what the events led to this thing that then had a macro effect on the world. Yeah. But it wasn't talking about the macro the whole time. There was no, like, like we were talking about, the guns don't actually really, we get our first taste of it when he's shooting his air rifle earlier on, Yeah, but is immediately rejected by um, Helen for having it. Like, and we only kind of get more of the, 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 the gun emphasis in the later parts of the film when he's become more unhinged, up, all after Helen's death. Yeah. Um, so it's all motivated within the narrow scope of the film. Um, so yeah, it's a very odd point and it kind of, I remember, I mean, the fact that our immediate reaction was, well, that, I mean, what we've just talked about is the fact that neither of us were born when this event happened. And yet we have both grown up in our whole lives, um, not really being like overtly fearful of, of, like you said, like living in LA, it's like, that would be such a scary thing for a guy like me or a guy like you. Yeah. you know? And I and I know people who they they've sta- they've said they bought houses in Australia 
they lived in Los Angeles, wanted to buy houses in Australia in the early 90s because it was safer. This is this predates this event. Yeah. You know, and I think I think I'm not going to like deduct points and I think the film is excellent. So yeah. like I, I mean, it was good to digest and talk about it on this show because I, I loved it as I was watching it, but then really wanted to digest and I slept on and I thought about it. And I think this discussion, I think it's a great, great, great film, but much like, you know, don't F with cats, which is a Netflix series has a very accusational ending at the end. It sort of points, points the finger at the audience saying, well, you're the problem. People like this exist and you give them the attention they want, which I think is BS, especially coming from, well, these guys made the show about this person. And this is different. It's not as accusation as that. No. But I think dismissing the progress that Australia's made in terms of gun laws feels weird it, because we've never had anything like this since because it, of Australia's yeah, actions. The importance is, yeah, the accusatory nature of it. It, The fact that, yeah, we've never had even something remotely resembling this horrific day Yeah. since then. And even then, the quickest... Like the legislative turnaround in 12 days, two parties that absolutely despise each other and constantly uh, attack each other's policies for the sake of them sitting on, and I don't agree with this notion, left or right wing. That's yeah. not how politics should work. Um, the fact that they jumped on that, and then not only that, the public immediately jumped on it. Like It was a complete yeah. and utter overhaul in which within that year, what was it, 600,000 firearms have been re- Called and destroyed. Like, that yeah, is... Bought out. Yeah, yeah. By the government. That's crazy. That's an ingenious idea, by the way. And uh, so it was a complete and utter disarmament that has now led to... Yeah. It's like... Yeah, I'm not saying gun violence doesn't exist in Australia. It's not completely and utterly gone. But we're, we're so far removed from that. Yeah. Like, when... If you ever hear a story about, you know... It's like someone here, you know, dying at the hands of a gun. It's 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 pretty. It's pretty it's rare. You yeah. know, you don't you, like very rare. I mean, it's like I think, yeah. The the point made um, by the film at the end was it was a very odd taste in the mouth way to finish um, and leave your film. And I kind of hope maybe they revisit that and maybe pretend, you know might obscure hopefully if more people kind of i, I want to say acknowledge that that's probably wrong to put that in there i hope that they might actually maybe take it back to the edit room and uh. and quickly because uh, i really don't think i think it has no place in the film and actually does detract from the film right because i yeah look i I'm, I'm never a fan of changing things after the fact i think like it's it's there it's there now that's true and it is is pure artistic vision for better or worse so yeah well that well that's it it's like at the end of the day that's clearly the point they still wanted to make i don't think it makes sense within the context of this film i'm gonna leave it at this point before i want to talk a little bit more about justin cazell the director because i i didn't realize some of the other films he directed and it's actually it actually makes a lot of sense (laughs) looking at some of these yeah um but the the point i'll leave on in regards to the film versus the the message at the ending of the film is when i see you know nit ram you know talking to a girl and then she just dismisses him or knocking the doors trying to find a way to make a job so he can buy a surfboard and people dismiss him and and i see these elements of a confused kid who i think was actually diagnosed having the intelligence of an 11 year old which I totally saw in the performance of like, he's playing younger than he actually is, which I love that. Um, all of that spoke to me in a way that this is representing reality. And that last piece of text t- 
to me, doesn't represent my reality. Because I don't think Australia has a gun problem anymore. Sure. Cool. So that, that's what I'm going to leave it on there. Uh, his other film, Snowtown, True History of the Kelly Gang. That <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> I've seen Snowtown, and that definitely cool. makes sense. I thought this was a stronger film over Snowtown, uh, cool. which is fantastic because yeah. that we love to we love to see progression, mm. not regression. I've also seen Assassin's Creed. <laughs> oh my god, he directed Assassin's Creed. Which, um, I saw that in the cinema. Um, so oh my god, that's funny. To put a bit of, I guess, levitation. That that is pretty funny compared to Hamlet, True History of the Galley Gang, and Snowtown. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is yeah. some heavy. I would love to see Hamlet. I've always wanted to see that because that's got Fassbender in it. Yeah, that also. that'd be interesting. Um, True History of Kelly Gang. That's been on my list forever. Um, I you've remember got, the post. You've got Stan too. Like it's yeah, on Stan. No, it's, it's on I Stan. don't have Stan, so I've been. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Oh, I didn't know you didn't have Stan. No, oh. I haven't leached yeah. off your Stan yet. No, that's not. It's, I'm leeching off someone else's Stan. Ah, oh. it's all a big web, isn't it? Zeke? <laughs> yeah, I've got your Disney Plus. I got Liam's uh, uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that, that's that's how you play the you game, have, son. You, I'll give you my KO. It's the, the <laughs> I'm good. I think mean, my brother's got KO anyway. It's like it's the parasite of the streaming universe. Yeah, which is also on Stan. Parasite. Fair, if you had like a network of people and you all just agreed to get one, you would be fine. Yeah, there's gonna be a way around it. It's not even that expensive. Like we have Netflix, Stan, Disney Prime, uh, binge, and Apple mm. plus SBS free. So like between those seven, that's still like what maybe sixty bucks a month. If you're like, I mean, if you're like us, I think that is totally worth the price. Yeah. Who like study film and talk about film and discuss film and it's all it's all an investment for this show and for our own interests for sure. But I still think there's going to be a bubble that bursts in the streaming world. We got really off topic, Zeke. What's your highlights <laughs> for NitRam? Um, it is um throwing back to uh, let me just uh, get this up for me. Get this up for me. My highlight scene is... You know what's funny? I just refreshed the NitRam letterbox page and one of our friends just uh, logged it as uh, in their watch list. Oh, cool. So in the last 10 minutes, someone just added this to their watch list. So big Come shout on, out Alex. To... Watch the damn film already. <laughs> <laughs> big shout out to Judy Davis. Um, her She has my highlight scene for her story about... Um, her with Nitram as a younger child. Oh, that's the trailer. It's um, the only trailer they put that out. That scene is just dynamite. Mm. And it says everything it needs to say. Um and it, honestly the back and honestly between both both the Davises in that scene, Essie and Judy. Yeah. Um they both I just realized of the same surname. I know. <laughs> um I wonder if they're related. Yeah, I was gonna ask that. I was hoping you would know the answer of it. Um, I don't gonna... think they are. Uh, there's nothing here. That would be, wouldn't that be strange? That would be cool. I actually think I could be wrong. I think Essie Davis is actually married to Justin Cazell, or they're together. Okay. Because I think she's in some of his other films as well. Um, yeah, that scene is is kind of haunting. It shows sort of what I'm talking about with how Judy Davis's mother's character is very much holding the the flood dam at bay and her, her need to control him is not out of a overly bearing parent, but mm. out of a holding, it's a fear, a incredible volatile force from bursting. Yeah. And Essie Davis's character with her, 
sort of her coddling and her need to her basically a selfish need to satisfy loneliness at the expense of this child basically um definitely uh, is brought out like it's brought out in that scene with her reaction of kind of the first time she's kind of put on notice about what he's capable of the fact that he's uh, laughing in like insanely in the back after watching her suffer for an hour straight i think that really kind of i remember audibly groaning at that scene being yeah. like, oh yeah. no like it, it just that's those beautiful um breadcrumbs they leave throughout the film that are all congruent with one another yet completely isolated from one another which really shows that like we're saying there wasn't a there wasn't a a tipping point moment with this character's yeah heinous act it was just kind of just a part of him like what made up of him like he was not he was sociopathic yeah and and unfeeling for a lot longer than the film's duration well it plays into that nature nurture argument which i think the film actually doesn't touch on that much obviously there's a lot of parental um discussion to be had with this film but I think that's a great example right there. That's the first example that that you know we need to talk about Kevin effect of like an evil child who who gets something out of that you know horror that their mother's facing. Um, my highlight scene would simply be the, the one we've already mentioned where um, Nitram has his sort of he's showing the fireworks to the kids. The teacher yells at him, and I just love the nuances in his performance. I know I already mentioned that the way he's trying to aggravate everyone by you know pressing into the the. The, the car horn. It's a stressful scene. It's a very For stressful scene. For the dad. But, but what I love, especially about him, is he's like, oh, why does he hate me? And I think that is something that I can relate to from my childhood of, of taking attacks very personally. And that someone telling me not to do something or I'm doing the wrong thing or mm. misbehaving is a personal attack of they hate me. And I think that was a very... that that I think that really eats into the core of what Nit Ram's issues mm. are coming from me the world's against him you know in his eyes um but yeah that's my highlight scene no dramas well niram is currently out in cinemas near you and will be coming to stand when jake on november 24th so you got a got a quite a while actually that's yeah. that's well over a month so, so catch it in cinemas because you're going to want to feel horrible with uh, at least 10 to 15 other people <laughs> in the same room not just by yourself on a couch. Well, speaking of streaming platforms and cinemas, Jake, what are mm. new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Very little this week. So uh, thank God, because we're going very long on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> on Apple TV Plus this week, you have The Velvet Underground, which is a documentary about The Velvet Underground, the band. Uh, on Stan this week, we're just talking about Stan. You have films like Where the Millers, The Hangover Trilogy, Rush Hour 1 and 2, the Aviator. We talked about the Aviator edit earlier today. So I'm going to end up like Leo DiCaprio <laughs> when I'm older and buy myself in a room with a box of tissues. Um, oh God, that's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> He's a germaphobe, people. It's not that gross. Um, and Boogie Nights as well. And most importantly, Envoy Shark Call, which is a film that I shot some footage for back in the day. There so you, you can watch that on Stan. Uh, and we've got some more spooky stuff coming to Netflix, including The Invisible Man, I'm guessing the 2020 version, uh, Jigsaw, the 2017 film, and Fever Dream, which tells the haunting story of broken souls, toxins, looming environmental and spiritual catastrophes. That's a logline. So <laughs> make with that vague-ass logline what you will. 
And coming to cinemas, uh, we already talked about this last week, but Lamb is getting its wider release on the 14th. Mm. Uh, and also, if you're looking for a preview, screener at, a preview screening at Lunar on Saturday the 16th, which is my sister's birthday, you can see Facing Monsters, which digs deep into the psyche of the Australian slab wave surfer Kelby or Kirby Brown. So, uh, yeah, that's it. That's everything. No yeah, dramas. Well, we're not catching yeah. any of those next week on the show, but Jake, <laughs> what are we watching? We're going to keep this Essie uh, Davis train moving. I think it's time we watch something we might not necessarily agree on, Zeke. What next week, we're watching The Babadook. Where'd you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Nothing bad's gonna happen, Sam. Did he think that about my dad before he died? Who sees things as they are, that one? I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. Oh, my God. Did he hurt anyone? The boy has significant behavioural problems. This monster thing has got to stop, all right? It's just a book. It can't hurt you. single mother plagued by the violent death of her husband battles with her son's fear of a monster lurking in the house but soon discovers the sinister presence all around her so babadook babadook se davis is the star you have yeah. uh, jennifer ken of course we did her film we mentioned it earlier we did the nightingale how, how good are so, we uh, i know where uh, things are things are closing in zeke and I'm excited because we promised at the start of the year we would do more films like that we were divisive on, films that mm-hmm. we didn't agree necessarily on, whether we liked them or not. Um, this might be the first like true one that's been in the books for, for literally years we oh, wanted yeah. to do this film because we don't agree on how we feel about this film. So it's going to be yeah, fascinating yeah, I'm to not revisit. I'm not a big fan of this film, yeah. but it um, has been a very long time since I've seen it. Right. Quite well, a few years. Well, I, I actually studied this in high school. The year it came out was my year 12. And we did a lot of uh, surrealistic filmmaking. Was it? Yeah, no, it would have been year 12. Yeah. Uh, we tied it to, to Monster, the short film that she did. Mm-hmm. And then this film, The Babadook. So I think I have an innate love for it because of how much I've like looked into it. How many times I've seen it. But that being said, I haven't seen it in six years. So it'd be very interesting to revisit. Maybe I won't like it as much. Who knows? I have to give it a go. Yeah. No dramas. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with The Babadook.